Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I get paid to be a nerd. I'm a a paid nerd. I went to Indonesia to see a walking octopus. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the best of the Nerdette podcast on WBEZ Chicago. Later this hour, conversations with authors Amy Tan, Malcolm Gladwell, and Doris Kearns Goodwin. We'll also hear about some great lady nerds of history. And hear from some teenage girls in Chicago who are learning to code. But first, Trisha, I think we should explain this whole nerdette thing to people who maybe haven't heard us before. Sure. So we're nerds. And we're ladies. And the way it works for many of us working in public radio is I should start a podcast is the equivalent of other folks saying, I should write a novel or I should start a screenplay. We say it all the time. We don't usually do it. But we kind of couldn't help ourselves. And I think in part it was because at the start of our friendship, it made a lot more sense to me to say, hey, let's create lots of work to do together (laughs) than to just say, let's hang out because we're kind of socially (laughs) awkward like that. And that's why our nerdiness is such a beautiful thing, right? Exactly. These are the kind of conversations we missed having staying up late in the dorm room. It's the things we're nerding out about. Books, movies, TV. And conversation. And space. I really like space. (laughs) And you can have space. I'll take knitting. So we nerd out about lots of things. And every week we have a conversation with someone about the things that they nerd out about. Sometimes it's people you would expect to be nerds. Sometimes it's not. Over the next hour, you'll hear a number of our favorite conversations from over the last six months of Nerdette Podcast. And one of the first conversations we had is with Julie Shapiro. Julie's the former artistic director of the Third Coast International Audio Festival. She's an avid supporter and connoisseur of innovation in sound. When the online audio storytelling site Transom asked her to write a trend piece, she had to write about the thing that had been bugging her for a long time, the lack of women in podcasting. And this kind of helps set the scene, too, for us as lady podcasters. The lack of women podcasters is really startlingly depressing. The numbers are pretty striking. Can you tell us what you found out? Out of the top 100 most popular podcasts on Stitcher, and the iTunes one reflected very closely the same dynamic, if not the same exact numbers, Nine out of 100 podcasts that were hosted just by women, and there were 11 podcasts co-hosted by a man and a woman. Eighty other ones are just driven by a male host. It's just puzzling in this day where the technology is accessible to everyone and there are no limitations or constraints on who can do whatever they want and who can hear that. I remember having the same sort of hunch that you did, but until you laid out the numbers in this article... I started to go through sort of my listening diet and go, yeah, there are very few female voices in these podcasts as an occasional guest or a token member of a panel, it often felt like. What are some of the reasons that you anecdotally got in response from people about why this is? You know, you can talk about the podcast world being sort of tech heavy and more men involved in tech and tech culture. I think that has a large part to do with it. And the whole comedy world is huge. And I think probably, I'm absolutely no expert on comedy stats, but, you know, just there were more successful male comedians. What drove me crazy was people would say, like, well, what about Terry Gross? <laughs> what, <laughs> there are women podcasters. What about Terry Gross and Brooke Gladstone? <laughs> you know, and, right, and right. like, wait a second. A, she's a co-host. B, those are public radio shows that exist as podcasts as well. I think women are more likely to be willing to pursue something done by men than vice versa. And I don't know how much of that has to do with the fact that then as a result, a lot of these women-hosted podcasts are very female-centric in the topics they're exploring. But I remember even as a kid, you know, reading books, really not minding whether the protagonist was male or female. And I think that's a lot more difficult for guys. I think they're just less likely to read a book Yeah, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to read The Hardy Boys and not get anyone saying anything to you than if a boy has a Babysitter's Club book in their hand. Exactly. That's really true. Really true. But the puzzle is still for me, like, why haven't there been more people like the two of you saying, well, let's give this a try? 
so let me turn the tables. Like, why did it take this long to start? By the way, I'm so glad you're doing this. But it, was it something you thought about for a while and then you needed a push? Or is it just circumstance like now you have the opportunity to and as soon as you did, you started it up? Or I find it problematic that so many female-hosted podcasts are very female-centric. And that, I think, is something that we're trying to branch away from also. You know, of course, it's a place where we'll talk about some women's issues. But I think it's bigger than that. And as a result, then we can expand the conversation beyond that, too. Yeah, definitely. There's no reason it can't be about everything. We can't thank Julie Shapiro enough for the kick in the pants that her Transima article gave us in starting the Nerd App podcast. As nerds, one of the things we found ourselves missing in our lives was homework. I don't know about you guys, but I always thought homework was pretty fun. We were the kind of kids who asked teachers for more homework. And without the structure of school in our lives anymore, we missed somebody saying, hey, read this book or watch this movie or go check out this museum. So we decided that one of the things Nerdette would do is find people who we think are awesome and ask them to give you homework assignments. Turns out that the nerds you love also love homework. And Malcolm Gladwell is no exception. He's the author of the books Blink, Tipping Point, and his newest is David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Is there some homework that you would like to give our Nerdette listeners? Well, yes. This is music to my ears as someone who's devoted to homework. Go to a library, a good one, it has to be a good one, university library, or just go online and order books by Richard Nisbet. He is a psychologist at the University of Michigan who's written maybe three or four of the most interesting books you'll ever read that have had an enormous impact on my way of looking at the world. The first one, for example, was called The Person and the Situation, which just is this really incredibly elegant book which just points out all the ways in which, without realizing it, we are influenced by what's going on around us that a lot of what we think of as us is actually our situation, which is sort of obvious and sort of not. And until you read it, you don't realize what a big deal your situation is or how kind of deluded we are about why we behave the way we do. And then he wrote a book on intelligence, intelligence and how to get it, which is fantastic. How to get it. I like that idea, that it's out there. Go get it. That's exactly one of his big themes is that a lot of what we think of is kind of baked into us is not baked into us. It's out there to get or... So, yeah, I would just root around with Richard Nisbet for a couple of weeks and you'll emerge a happier person. Are there things like that that you return to every few years, novels, films, things that you kind of go back to because they have a place for you in inspiring you? Or I think it might have been David Sedaris who once said sometimes he'll write a sentence he really loves just to see how it feels to yeah. write a sentence that good from another author's work. Yeah, I reread Janet Malcolm books because she's sort of the gold standard about how to write nonfiction, to remind myself. The thing that's really wonderful about her writing is her patience. So she requires you to wait at least halfway through the book for the good stuff to start. She builds her foundation. Her foundations are really boring, right? They're not interesting. But it's gripping because you know something's going to happen. It's this sort of this fabulous suspense that builds slowly as she puts everything in place calmly and methodically. It's hard to do what she does because you have to have an incredible amount of confidence that your reader will stay with you. But I think she's a reminder that why do we lack confidence about our readers? Writers should have more patience. Not everything has to pay off in the first three pages. Especially they've already bought the book, right? They've already bought the book. They're they're in so deep. (laughs) Just yesterday I was watching you talk a little about David and Goliath in this story. Turns out I had it all wrong too. I thought the moral of David and Goliath was brains are better than brawn. But maybe that's not quite it or maybe a little bit it. It's a little bit it. Wrong is a slightly overheated way of saying it. The story is just a lot more complicated than we've read it as. David's big thing is he breaks the rules. Of course, he brings a sling to a sword fight. But once he's done that, he's no longer this underdog. The sling in his hands is exceedingly dangerous weapon, one of the most devastating weapons of ancient times. He's brought superior technology to bear on his fight with Goliath. And then Goliath, there is a little secret in the beginning of my book about Goliath, which makes you realize, oh, giants are not what they seem as well. And we have been reminded, have we not, in the world over the last several decades about how giants are not what they seem. The biblical story is when you investigate its true meaning is even more relevant and powerful. I think you might like our definition on our show. Uh, We 
think of nerd as a verb, not a noun. And it reminds me of what you've said about genius, that it has to come with an extreme passion. Otherwise, yeah. nothing else matters. What are the things that maybe you're not known for, but that you are a nerd about? International track and field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I could recount to you the number of times I have like dropped everything in order to sign on to some incredibly obscure website, in order that I can see the 5,000 meters being run at some track <laughs> meet in you know, Oslo at 3 in the morning. That's happened a lot. Um, and, you know, the days I go to the library and start rooting around are among my happiest moments. When I just, we were talking about David and Goliath, there's all this fabulous medical literature about Goliath in endocrinology journals, and it goes back like 50 years. So when I found that stuff from like 1960 in the Indiana Medical Journal, blah, 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 I cannot tell you how just ecstatic I was. So being a journalist is a bit like being a nerd for a living, really. Oh, I get paid to be a nerd. I'm a, <laughs> I am a, I'm a paid nerd. <laughs> Thanks to Malcolm Gladwell. You can find a link to more information about his new book, David and Goliath, and a TED Talk about the old story that he's taken a second look at at nerdatpodcast.com. Next is someone who is equally excited to give you all some homework. Amy Tan is author of Joy Luck Club, and her new book is The Valley of Amazement. Well, when you're reading the book, I would suggest that you get a soundtrack called Less Caution from the movie Less Caution. And there's a particular cut, 99 cents. I think it's called Wong Chia Chi's theme. That is the music I listened to when I was writing this book. And I think it might be a different experience to read a book with that kind of mood in the setting. The other thing, homework-wise, is to discover something new. That's what I do when I'm reading a book. It's also what I do when I'm writing. I want to discover something I've never thought about or seen. So my new thing is I go into the water and I snorkel and I'm looking for something specifically. So I've been going with marine biologists and I'm looking for octopuses. Um, I'm going to go to Nicaragua to see a certain kind of octopus. I went to Indonesia to see a walking octopus. I used to be terrified of the ocean. I would hate cold water. It had to be 180 degrees out in the water in the swimming pool before I would go in. But now I went into 50-degree water a few weeks ago to see the salmon spawning. You know, I wore a wetsuit, but this is my excitement to see a part of the world that I refused to see at first or that I did not know existed. I think it's a metaphor for looking at life as well, where you open something up. The ocean is far bigger, greater than our land surfaces, so there's so much to see. And also with reading, with fiction or the world of music, to look for something, listen for something new. That was a promise I made to myself when I turned 60. I didn't want to learn something new like skydiving. <laughs> I wanted to expand my world. So that would be my homework, and I think it would be a fun one where it's an effort to go someplace you've never been and then look and try to discover something new as a scientist would. Look at a bug differently. Watch a bunch of ants for an hour, as I did, to see their behavior, to see how fast they go to find a piece of egg yolk. Crazy little things. And to be clear, you're not saying just look up on YouTube, you know, no, ants. We mean really get it. out there. This is to do it and <laughs> expose yourself to the weather and the mosquitoes and whatever it is. I also try to make things myself. People always say, well, who does your tweets for you or your Facebook or your website. I do it myself. So I try to find something that expresses my personality. I did my own website, and right now it's not working very well. <laughs> but at least I get to say that I did it myself. I'm a real nerd, actually. <laughs> I love gadgets. And I created a slideshow for my talks now at the readings I go to. So I love to try new things. Here's my other homework. Oftentimes, we listen to music with one ear tuned to something else, music being background. And I think it's a really wonderful experience to simply sit down, put that CD on of some kind of music, and listen to it without talking, 
purely listening to the music. It's amazing what you hear. My favorite I would recommend is Rachmaninoff Concerto Three in D minor and the first movement. It starts off simply. It's like a story. When you hear the music, think of a story and how it builds and imagine it happening. You're carried with it, and that's an experience. So I'm into all kinds of new experiences. That sounds like a whole liberal arts degree we've got there. A little music, a little science. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks to Amy Tan. You can find links to her new book, The Valley of Amazement, and all your homework and old episodes at nerdettepodcast.com. Still ahead, Jillian Anderson. Scully! Reflects on playing Agent Scully on X-Files 20 years later and the Scully phenomenon it caused for women in science. But now it's time to get to know some great lady nerds of history. One of my favorite conversations from the last year, I have to say, was with presidential historian and original nerdette. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Can you tell me what your relationship is with baseball? It is irrational passion, no question, from childhood. I mean, my father taught me how to keep score when I was six years old. Brooklyn Dodgers was my team. I grew up in New York. He'd come home at the end of the day. I would have recorded the history of that afternoon's game, and I would tell him every single play of every inning that had taken place. I think that's where my love of history and my, hopefully, ability to tell a story came from. He never told me then that all of this was actually described in great detail in the sports pages of the newspapers the next day. I thought without me, he wouldn't even know what happened to the Brooklyn Dodgers. (laughs) And for years afterwards, I mean, eventually when the Dodgers abandoned us and I went to Boston to graduate school, I became an equally rational Red Sox fan. But I could not be at a game without keeping score for years and years and years. What else did you nerd out about as a kid? I think I nerded out on reading novels. I can still remember that my best friend next door and I read Gone with the Wind together. And she then had a bedroom right across from me. Our driveways were so thin that we could talk about what we read that day at night when we were supposed to be asleep. What got you interested in government and politics and all these things as a youngster? Yeah, well, it, interestingly, it wasn't politics when I was young. But what happened is my parents took me, because we lived in Long Island, to Teddy Roosevelt's house at Sagamore Hill. And I went to Franklin Roosevelt's house at Hyde Park. And I remember I was pretty young then, too. And I somehow thought that he couldn't be dead because he had left his glasses on his desk (laughs) and because Fallow's leash was on the chair. So I thought Fallow would be running around. And it was the first time I really began to think that you could possibly bring them back to life by knowing enough about them. So I started reading about them. And then I had a great history teacher in high school. It could have become history of other things, in fact, had it not been for working for LBJ when I was 24 years old. And then suddenly the fascination with the presidency developed. How did you get away with writing such a scathing piece about LBJ and still keep your job with him? It was pretty strange that he didn't (laughs) kick me out of the program. I mean, what had happened is I'd already won this White House fellowship. We had a dance at the White House. He did dance with me. He did whisper he wanted me to be assigned directly to him in the White House. But then this article came out that I'd written prior to this with a friend. I was in the anti-war movement. How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power was the title. So I thought not only would he kick me out of the program, but he might can the entire program because he could do things like that. Surprisingly, he just said, oh, bring her down here for a year, and if I can't win her over, no one can. Hmm. So it wasn't right away that I went to the White House, and there was only one cabinet member, the Labor Department guy, who was willing to take me because I was pretty damaged goods But <laughs> as far as they were concerned because they'd be afraid of LBJ. But then he asked me to come and work for him in the White House after a few months in the Labor Department. I ended up going down to the ranch helping him on his memoirs. He never changed my mind about the war, but he did change my mind about him, and I felt more Pathetic, and he was so sad at the end of his life, you couldn't help but feel a sense of vulnerability in him. And that began a career of studying dead presidents. <laughs> so that's pretty nerdy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested in this thing you wrote 
and it being not a cast-off thing, but come here, I'll convince you. Sounds like that is a bit what the relationship between the press and Roosevelt was like in your new book, The Bully Pulpit, a different relationship than we have now between our White House press corps and our presidents. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what made Roosevelt's presidency successful was that he had really close friendships with a lot of the press, but he was okay about the fact that they would criticize him from time to time, but he needed them. He needed them to reach the public and to mobilize the public against the old guard that was in the Congress who wouldn't pass his legislation unless the people got aroused. That idea of really getting the people riled up about a cause is something that just doesn't seem to happen anymore, especially when you think about, you know, reading 50,000 word magazine articles about these issues and people really becoming mobilized. Is that what's really missing these days? Is it just the attention span? Is it complacency? What do you think? I think it's a couple of different things. The magazine that I focused on, McClure, is the most important progressive magazine of the decade. They gave their writers staff positions. They could work for two years without having to produce a word, huge expense accounts, and then comes these stories. Ida Tarbell, who is just an extraordinary woman, who becomes the crusader and the Joan of Arc of her time by unmasking what Standard Oil was doing and becoming a monopoly using all sorts of unfair illegal means. And in fact, once she got into the press with her 12-part series, a regulation was passed on corporations and they undid Standard Oil. They broke it up into Mobil and Exxon and Amoco. So what an extraordinary achievement she had. And all the other reporters there felt the same way. I know there's journalists today who would want to have that same impact. And we have things out there like ProPublica, which has an investigative reporting group of journalists. But we just need a lot more than what we have now. Let's talk a little more about how awesome Ida Tarbell was, since this is the Nerdat podcast. <laughs> We're talking turn-of-the-century female investigative journalist, boys club of all boys clubs, Absolutely. to be a newsman at the time. How did she end up able to do this? What's so extraordinary about her is that she grows up in Pennsylvania. Her father was a teacher, but then became an independent oil producer, and then he got swallowed up by Standard Oil. So that piece of her was always there. But then she watched her mother, who she knew that her mother wanted to have higher education. She'd been a teacher, but she had to spend her time caring for the family because especially of the economic problems. So she, at the age of 14, prayed to God that she would never take a husband. She was the sole woman in her freshman class at Allegheny, and then she took a job with a local magazine. She dreamed of going to Paris and becoming a biographer of a woman figure in the French Revolution, and she told her boss she was leaving. He made a remark she would never forget, and he said to her, how are you going to support yourself when you're in Paris? She said, well, I'm going to write, of course. You're not a writer, he said. You will starve. <laughs> I, he, she was so glad to see him later in life. Anyway, she goes to Paris, mm -hmm. no money hardly except what she saved. She's writing freelance articles for newspapers at home to support herself going to the library to write this dreamed-of book. McClure, this crazy, wonderful founder of McClure's magazine, reads one of the articles, is in Paris, climbs 80 steps up to see her, and he says, I've only got 10 minutes. I, I have to talk to you. I'm starting a new magazine. They talk for three hours, and then he finally says, i got to leave. I have to catch the train. Can you lend me $40? She had $40 saved in her drawer to go on a vacation. She gives it to him, thinking she may never see it again, but he sent her a check the next day, and then she becomes really the mother hand of the group. She was extraordinary. I mean, when she wrote her John D. Rockefeller series that helped produce this mobilized feeling about Standard Oil, there was a newspaper clipping that said John D. Rockefeller was looking for a husband for her so that he could send her around the world on an extended honeymoon. <laughs> but I really, really respected her, and she broke every barrier at the time. So Doris Kearns Goodwin, you and I both owe a lot to her, I would say. Without a question. No, I mean, and the other person we owe a lot to, one of the people that I wrote about as well, is Eleanor Roosevelt. Because when Eleanor had her press conferences as first lady, she made a rule that only female journalists could come to her press conferences. So all over the country, stuffy publishers had to hire their first female journalists. whole generation got their start because of Eleanor's press conferences. I knew I liked her. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> You talk a lot in the bully pulpit about the two first ladies of Taft and Roosevelt. Who were they? How did they impact their president? Well, sometimes we make a mistake by looking at the political part of the first lady when we know from human relationships that the relationship they have with their husband is central. So, for example, Edith Roosevelt decided when she was first lady that she was not a public personage. All she wanted was to give him a home and a sanctuary from the craziness of all of his activities. And she said a woman's name should be in the press only on two times when they get get married and when they're buried. But she was indispensable to him because of all of his manic energy. She gave him that family, the children, and he found refreshment and renewal in the family. Nellie Taft 
by contrast, growing up in Cincinnati from the time she was an adolescent, dreamed of doing something on her own. She was way ahead of her time. She loved going to the working-class district of Cincinnati, having beer with laborers. She wanted to go to college, but her father sent her brothers to Harvard and Yale, no higher education for her. So she taught for a number of years, and her mother said, you'll never get into society, you'll never get married if you keep teaching. But she meets young Will Taft, who adores her, and values her independence and makes her his partner. And indeed, her love of politics is what spurred him away from being a judge, which is what he really only wanted to be. They're like campaign managers together. They go through speeches together. When he finally becomes president, it's the happiest day of her life. And then she's a real activist first lady, in contrast to Edith. She worked on conditions of working women. She brought the cherry trees to Washington. She created a municipal free park with free concerts, brought all sorts of people to the White House, and I think would have become somebody we remembered like Eleanor Roosevelt and may have changed his presidency too because what happened is two months after his inauguration when the New York Times had just written a story about how she was the most activist first lady in decades, she had a stroke and she was never able to speak in continuous language again. And it was just heartbreaking for him. So the impact on him is huge. It shadowed his whole presidency. They said they'd never seen, he looked like a stricken animal. And he missed her enormously. He could train her to say, glad to see you or happy to be here so she could attend reception. She didn't want to be put away into the upstairs of the White House. So she was really brave in that respect. So what were Roosevelt and Taft nerds about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Taft, I suppose... I don't know whether it's nerdy, but the thing he loved more than any was golf. And that was the one thing he could do, given his large frame. He could play golf. But Teddy worried about him playing golf when he was running for president. Teddy wanted him to be president to succeed him, and he thought that golf looked like a rich man's game to the, 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 to the working class. The windsurfing of its time. The windsurfing of its time, that's exactly. So he said, stop <laughs> playing golf. Um, he also liked baseball, which, of course, I adore. He threw out the first ball. Teddy, just his exercising was crazy. I mean, boxing, wrestling, taking hikes in Rock Creek Park where you're climbing over rocks, you're taking your clothes off and going over streams. Um, I mean, physical exercise was really almost an obsession with him. But the one thing he also did was that he loved reading. And he said books were companions that once met are never forgotten. And he had a book with him everywhere he went. And he said that leaders need to know human nature and you get it best by poetry or prose. It's nice to think about someone who's dealing with policy all day long having a poem at the end of the night in their bedside table. Absolutely. So he's a many-sided creature. And certainly a passionate person. If we're defining nerd as just extreme passion. <laughs> I think he, he was probably the happiest president that I've ever studied. He just loved he loved being president. He loved being in the center of things. His daughter Alice said he would have loved being a bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral and the baby at the baptism. <laughs> but he really had... His energy, people couldn't understand. I mean, somebody likened it to Niagara Falls. He was a force of nature, partly because he exercised so much, maybe, but partly because I think he may have drank, they claimed, 40 cups of coffee a day. He gave (laughs) Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned a president being sort of proud and open about the fact that they read poetry. I feel in our current environment, we've created a culture that would sort of mock the idea that someone who wants to have a very important, difficult job is an intellectual. We hear professorial is a bad thing in a candidate's run. Why are we willing to have someone we'd rather have a beer with than who could be our professor make such important decisions? I agree. I mean, I think that's partly what the celebrity culture has done. It's partly what our media culture has done. And it makes no sense to say that you want the guy that you can just talk to. I mean, he does need a president to speak in language that you can understand. I mean, Teddy would say about himself that sometimes his Harvard buddies teased him that his language was homely and not as sophisticated as it should be. But that didn't mean that he himself wasn't reading sophisticated literature. But he also had the luxury of being this big game hunter at the same time as he's reading poetry. So I suppose that helps. <laughs> yeah, the big stick. Yes, Nobody makes big fun stick. of you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But your point is well taken, too. I mean, we criticize our presidents when they go on vacation as if they're not supposed to relax and replenish their energy somehow. But we get mad at them if they go away for a week. Now, Teddy used to go away for weeks at a time. They all used to go away in the summer continually, and, and the government would shut down because it was so hot in Washington. <laughs> Maybe we'd be better off with that now. I think they don't should... seem to be doing anything anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, let's take away their air conditioning and they'll yeah. get up the same amount done. It's fine. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you so much for joining us on the Nerdette Podcast. Lovely to meet you. I love the title of this, Nerdette Podcast. That's just great. Thank you. <laughs> 
Thanks to Doris Crohn's Goodwin, her newest book is called The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. Next up, a conversation with author Thomas Mayer. His book, Masters of Sex, The Life and Times of William Masters and Virginia Johnson, The Couple Who Taught America How to Love, is the inspiration for the Showtime series. We're both fans of the new Showtime series, Masters of Sex, and it made us curious about what the real Virginia Johnson was like. The first conversation that I had with her was over four hours, and we went from talking about their work to, in the very first conversation, she told me, about how she lost her virginity as a teenager. Just hearing that you were able to talk with her for four hours straight when she's 80 years old, I think gives a pretty good sense that you were in for a ride once she opened up. Virginia Johnson had been interviewed hundreds of times in her life. They had a degree of fame that very few people realize, and they had that for 25, 30 years. One of the things that I found most interesting about the book is going back through and realizing she never did really study in a formal setting. She got this job with masters and the rest is history. She got called doctor by journalists who were mistaken much of her life, it sounds like. Yeah. Virginia Johnson had a remarkable ability to understand human nature. The way in which masters was a kind of a hard science guy concerned about the anatomy and the physiology It was Virginia Johnson who convinced people, first of all, to volunteer for their study, but it was also her native genius. It was Virginia who came up with their therapy that wound up becoming uh, remarkably successful. It became the basis for the modern sex clinics, the Masters in Johnson therapy that became renowned throughout the world. What was that initial pitch like? I interviewed, I'd say, about 15 to 20 doctors who were young pups, if you will, back in the day working for Masters. Masters was the top doctors at Washington University in the medical school. And a lot of the doctors were able to remember what it was like seeing Virginia in the, in the cafeteria at the medical school, convincing graduate students and nurses, and sometimes faculty wives and, and such, to become part of the study, that it was all part of something for science. And, you know, these were generally younger people. And the whole idea sounds incredibly radical, but apparently Virginia's charisma, her understanding about human nature, and the way in which she posed the proposition, if you will, they were able to get a number of different volunteers. Eventually, over 10 years, they had about 370 women who were part of the study. I think 312 men. He said I could only talk about it with women who are willing to volunteer. Volunteer for... For what? This study is about sex. It's things that we've always suspected, but never had proven scientifically. It's a whole new world that we're opening up. Groundbreaking. Very exciting. For women, especially, it will probably be the biggest change to women's lives since the right to vote. It's really interesting to think about how even 60 years ago almost, Virginia Johnson was able to get these women to be willing to participate. Her bedside manner must have just been phenomenal. You know, I think back then there was not as much awareness of women's rights. But also, you know, at a medical school these days, every medical school has an ethics board and probably rule against anything like this. The fact that it was done with anonymity, that it was done with the approval of the chancellor of the school and with the head of the department at Washington University, but really nobody else. And certainly the way their relationship evolved, Masters and Johnson, would probably not pass an ethics board examination today either in a workplace. Right, absolutely. Very early on, within about the first year of working together, Bill Masters essentially required Virginia, to have sex with him. He actually used a Freudian term, transferring. Two of us should undertake the research ourselves. Have sex with our patients. Bill, that would be transference. We should undertake the research with each other. I've considered this carefully, and uh, I realized it's the best way to ensure the longevity of the project. We get the benefit of interpreting the data firsthand, plus it uh, deflects any 
an appropriate projection away from our patients, keeps it just between us. It was very, very difficult for Virginia. Essentially, the boss was asking her to have sex with him, no matter how he dressed it up. She loved the work by that point. Their relationship developed from there to become a much more equal relationship, as much as what would constitute sexual harassment, clearly, by requiring Virginia to have sex with him. You know, Masters also wound up giving her a great degree of credit for their work. You know, the first book, they shared a byline. She didn't have a degree. The idea that he gave her equal billing in all their work was in its own profound way an expression of his regard, I dare say his love for her, even though they were both remarkably bad at expressing their love for one another. They were fascinated by one another, and both in their own way made the other one's dream come true. The Things We Do for Science Thanks to Thomas Mayer. You can hear extended interviews and old episodes at nerdettepodcast.com. Here at Nerdette, we like to highlight not just lady nerds of the past, but the budding lady nerds of the future. So on Ada Lovelace Day, we celebrated her, the grandmother of computer programming, and also went to a Chicago school where girls are learning to code right now. Greta, tell the nice nerds who Ada Lovelace is. For this, I want to yield the floor to an expert. She is amazing. And the, the more I understand about the context that she was living in, the more I realize just how imaginative and how far ahead of her time she was. So that's Sue Charman Anderson. She's the founder of Ada Lovelace Day. She just wanted to come up with a way to celebrate women in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And she says the more she found out about Lovelace, the more she knew that it had to be Ada Lovelace Day. She was the first computer programmer, and she was just this really great figurehead, this really lovely person who was basically 100 years ahead of her time. And Sue really isn't kidding when she says that Ada was 100 years ahead of her time. Ada was friends with this guy named Charles Babbage. He created designs for a machine called the analytical engine. And this was basically a mechanical computer. It had a lot of the uh, attributes that modern computers have, but it was made out of clockwork. It was a time machine? I gotta say, I love that idea, but I'm pretty sure Sue means, like, gears and stuff. So here's Babbage, right? And he's got all these ideas for this fancy machine. But remember, these are all just theoretical sketches. There's no actual machine. Ada studied those designs and was in very close contact with Babbage. They met a lot. They talked a lot about the analytical engine. They were constantly exchanging letters. And she came to understand the machine, as well as maybe even better than Babbage. What Ada saw was that the analytical engine, given the right algorithms, could calculate a result that had not been worked out by human head or hands first. Remember, we're still in 1800-something. So she had to understand enough about math and machines to know that you could build a machine that could do math on its own? Yes. So that's why she's considered the grandmother of computer programming. Even though females were there at the birth of these technologies, get this, Greta, only 12% of undergraduate computer science majors in the U.S. are women. 12%? 12%. Less than one in five computer science majors in colleges are ladies. What is the deal? Wow. But there are a lot of people working really hard to turn this around. I have hope. Where's the hope? The Hope was in a room full of teenage girls who were learning to code at Chicago Tech Academy. Is it with the youths? Yes, I met with the youths. These are teenage girls from around Chicago who are at a charter school where computer science is a part of the curriculum. Everybody takes computer science classes. There's advanced classes for students who show an aptitude and an interest. But in the same way that other schools don't let you leave without a base knowledge of certain other types of math and science, computer science is right in there. And this is pretty unique for a high school. So far, I have created a couple apps. I learned a lot about coding. I learned some Ruby codes, and we learn HTML, CSS, and I take a class downtown on Clark, 
It's called Mobile U, and they're teaching us how to make apps. Uh, I start getting interested in this stuff during grammar school when I used to be into computers. I used to take apart computers and put in uh, the parts inside the CPU. Last year when I was a freshman, we had to make our own page website. Uh, we use HTML, and we learned how to like connect our CSS to our HTML, and we had to write different code for the different containers like on the website, the header, the um, section, the article, and everything, and we learn how to design it. I'm building another one now this year. Mine is about candy. <laughs> and some of these young women had really specific plans about how they wanted to use their coding skills. When I get in college, I want to major in technology, and I want to do a minor in fashion, so I'm hoping to incorporate those together. Basically build things that will help fashion designers, like, design their clothes online, like, rather than drawing it out, and, like, just some type of advanced technology for fashion designers. I want to work in, like, forensic science and do something, like, that is in the justice field that has to do with um, technology and learning, like, about the human body and all that. Um, I really think it's cool, like, learning how to do different websites because they said things that we're doing now in high school, some people in college not even doing yet. So I think that's very awesome. And I would like to do more creating websites because in the future I would like to create my own website. Well, when I um, grow up, I want to open my own restaurant because when I go to college, I want to major in culinary. And I want to create a restaurant that incorporates a lot of technologies, like something different than other restaurants. It really felt like they had an answer for everything. But when I asked them if they knew that they were going to be faced with this giant gender gap if they kept studying computer science in college... They gave me these really blank stares and like beautiful blank stares because they just it had never occurred to them in the school where they're in classes with teenage girls and teenage boys who are all learning to code. And it's about a 50 50 split. They had no concept of the fact that they would be so outnumbered when they went to college, because why wouldn't girls code? I love that so much because it means that we really are able to break the chain. You know, if they don't even think it's an issue, then it doesn't have to be. And I just love that. Girls can get inspired to pursue STEM fields in classrooms, but also on TV. Jillian Anderson inspired a generation of nerdy scientists when she was Agent Scully on The X-Files. I think there were various times where I said, Mom, I want to be an archaeologist. Mom, I want to be a geologist. Mom, I, you know. And uh, we'd go to a museum and look at geodes, and, and then I'd change my mind and be interested <laughs> in something else. Or we'd buy one of those kits that you take home where you dig caked sand and you find a pretend dinosaur underneath. Uh, that all went out the window the minute I discovered acting. But I love nature programs. I would love lots of things to do with nature. But I don't actively search out these days other than nature programs, somebody else doing it. I don't go on trips and visit archaeological sites, et cetera, et cetera, which I would think that I would do more based on my uh, passion as a kid. Your mom worked with computers, right, in a pretty technical field, which would have been unique for her at that time. Probably she was one of the only women in her workplace doing that kind of work. Yes, and she was using cobalt back then. So... When we were in the U.K., when I was little, uh, she was working for Lloyds Bank and working for Westinghouse here and programming. When uh, Y2K happened, she got quite a lot of phone calls from people wanting her to get involved to help reprogram things. And, yeah, so very technical. We had early on in our show, we had an episode where we talked to folks about the different summer camps they went to as nerdy summer camps. And one girl called us. She's a grown woman now working in a completely different field. But she was so enamored with the X-Files that she wanted to be your character. And her parents couldn't figure out how to channel that into something productive. So they sent her to forensic pathology camp. X-Files was really hitting its peak. And I knew that what I wanted to do with my life was not study dolphins or marine life, but to be Dana Scully. I cut a lot of my hair off and I started buying tight black pantsuits and using the internet to make fake FBI badges. <laughs> my parents, they saw this devotion and thought, how can we turn this into something real and useful? Let's send her to forensic pathology camp at the University of Virginia. What a great idea. And so she learned all of the, the medical science and all of the science. And so you were inspiring young women to go into the sciences. Was that something that you felt? Did you get letters like that from folks who got sparked to 
be in the sciences because of these characters you've played? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm still reeling off the fact that there was a forensic pathology camp. <laughs> I want that camp. No, I think I went to a bike camp once. Uh, <laughs> that's the extent of it. But yeah, somebody informed me at one point that there was something in the science world called the Scully phenomenon. And it was that because of Scully, who was a medical doctor and a forensic pathologist, that more young women were entering the fields of science and medicine than had before. And the reasons that they were giving in their forums were Scully. Which is great. And I still have, I did a year of doing Comic-Cons this year because it's the 20th anniversary of the series. And there were numerous women who came up to me and said, you know, I have just graduated with my MA, my PhD in science. And I initially went in all those many years ago because of Scully. Yeah, so it's pretty awesome. Most of them probably dealing with tamer situations day to day, we hope, than Scully did. I I would imagine. (laughs) Is that something you think about when you choose a role, what sort of impact it might have as a role model or as an inspiration for folks who are watching and seeing a field get portrayed that doesn't often? Not necessarily. I mean, it's not usually the way that things come to me, that the work comes to me. I was aware of the fact, something I did recently, this series called The Fall. There's a character, Stella Gibson, and I I had a feeling that she would be good for women. There's something about her. And then people started making bumper stickers that said, what would Stella do? And mugs and fridge magnets and stuff like that. So in that respect, I feel grateful and proud to be able to be a part of and embody a character that has an impact in women's lives. And uh, that's certainly also what Scully seemed to do as well, just encourage women to be the best that they can be, to make right decisions for themselves. And I am a big supporter of that anyway in my life and in things that I get involved in. So it's nice to be able to portray characters that uh, seem to do the same thing. Major Mulder, I'm Dana Scully. I've been assigned to work with you. Oh, isn't it nice to be suddenly so highly regarded? So who did you take off to get stuck with this detail, Scully? Actually, I'm looking forward to working with you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, really? I was under the impression that you were sent to spy on me. If you have any doubt about my qualifications or credentials... You're a medical doctor. You teach at the academy. You did your undergraduate degree in physics. Einstein's twin paradox, a new interpretation. Dana Scully's senior thesis. Now that's a credential, rewriting Einstein. Did you bother to read it? I did. I liked it. It's just that in most of my work, laws of physics rarely seem to apply. Thanks to Jillian Anderson for talking with us. One of my favorite lady nerds on Twitter is the host of NPR's All Things Considered, Audie Cornish. She has a hashtag she uses often that's just nerd fail for things like, you know, when you accidentally forget to wear your contacts, so you end up at the 3D movie wearing glasses, and then you have to put the 3D glasses on your glasses. Hashtag nerd fail. Because I've seen so many of these movies for work. That's the funny thing. Like, a lot of these are movies that I would see and I'm excited to see them. But I'm actually also seeing them because I'm going to do an interview. Uh, so I bring a notebook and a pen, right? Because you don't want them to get you don't want to get kicked out of the theater with your cell phone or whatever. And I'm like scribbling in the dark with glasses on glasses. It is the most loser looking thing ever. One of my favorite parts of our conversation with Audie Cornish is when I mentioned Harry Potter. This is what my friend Liz told me about Harry Potter. She's like, everybody likes it for a reason, Greta. Oh, I don't, I haven't read a one. (laughs) It's now become a point of pride. Okay, quick story. So I'm doing an interview with Questlove of the Roots. Arguably the coolest person on the planet, right? Just factually at this point. The guy walks in the room and people are like, whoa, your afro's amazing. I love your music. TV's great. You're so cool. Like, he is cool. But he also is a nice guy and is, you know, totally game to talk. And I'm, I'm not a person who pretends that the people I interview I've become friends with. I talked to them for 20 minutes once and they couldn't see me, right? <laughs> so halfway through this interview, at some point, I'm asking him about his early days and the band and why he thinks the band is stuck together for so long, why the roots have survived. And he's like... 
two tour buses. Ha, ha, ha. And then he, like, rattles off two names of the tour buses. And I have no idea what he's talking about. And these are names from Harry Potter. And I have so little idea about what he's talking about. I'm literally like, what? What's that? Is that Game of Thrones or something? I'm like, is that Dungeons and Dragons? Like, and he's like, what is wrong with you? Like, it's Harry Potter. Why don't you know this? And I was mortified because I was like, you know, here I am thinking like, I'm the nerd. <laughs> At NPR, interviewing, you know, you, hip-hop dude with your hippity-hop, and uh, he just totally dropped knowledge on me about Harry Potter, and I failed the test. That was a huge nerd fail. So your reaction is not to feel instant remorse and go research and read the <laughs> of books. Of course not. It's the to damage just is disown done. them entirely. The damage is done. I mean, really, why bother now? I don't know. <laughs> Cadillac needs space to roam. She don't know. We in the city with a pro shake rat and rollin'. I'm a goddamn rolling stone. You can follow Audie and her nerdy tweets at NPR Audie. One more piece of homework from us to you, dear listeners. That's to call us and tell us what you're nerding out about. We've had whole episodes inspired by your stories from nerdy summer camp, movies that you just can't get enough of, or the great lady nerds of history that you want everyone to know more about. That's 312-600-5638. You can also let us know what you're nerding out about by tweeting at us, Nerd at Podcast, or on our Facebook page or our website, nerdatpodcast.com. That's it for this Best of the Nerd at Podcast special on WBEZ. We want to thank our guests, Amy Tan, Malcolm Gladwell, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Thomas Mayer, Jillian Anderson, and Audie Cornish. Also, students and staff at Chicago Tech Academy and Julie Shapiro. And thanks to Joe Dassault for engineering and editing assistance. Thanks to our home stations, WBEZ and WCQS. And thanks to our contributors who share their nerdy passions with us. Lauren Chulagin, our dinosaur correspondent. Megan Murphy-Gill, who nerds out about food, drink, books, kind of all the things. And her fellow nerd husband, Andrew Gill. Who, as co-host of Strange Brews Podcast, you can count on for some nerdy beer recommendations and does a pretty good presidential reenactment when necessary also thanks to our word nerd becky vv and rebecca polson my pop culture spirit guide and our booze nerd bj lederman did not compose our theme you're listening to poddington bear thanks to you for listening to the best of the nerd app podcast on wbez you can catch us weekly on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can find all our old episodes. Vintage. Vintage, Nerdette. Vintage episodes at nerdettepodcast.com. That's where you'll also find a steady stream of Neil deGrasse Tyson gifs, Liz Lemon quotes, and historical cocktail recipes. We would also like to take a moment to thank our mothers. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Ma. Happy New Year, nerds. Happy New Year! I wish we had a kazoo. <laughs> Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.